Welcome to the Humble Warrior Podcast. Here are your hosts, Chris Forte and John Moises. I'm John Moises. Sitting in for Chris Forte is Pat Jones, and this is the Humble Warrior Podcast. Welcome to the show. Hello, Pat. Hi. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. This is kind of exciting. It is. So Chris Forte is still in China. That's cool. So last, and he's been sending some cool pictures off to show you later. Oh my god, I love it. Um, so last week, my wife Erica was co-hosting, cool. and this week you are, and you are a good friend of my wife's for how long have you known each other? Uh, we're pushing up on twenty years. Wow, twenty. Okay, which is impossible because we're so young and right. So we'll have a lot to talk about. Twenty years of friendship. That's good. I want some. Maybe I'll get some secrets about my wife. I don't know if there are any. Actually, you probably know them all. No, there are some. I know. I just. It was interesting on the last podcast we did with her. Mm-hmm. We were talking about her spiritual journey, and I learned something that I, I never knew, and I forgot what it was. But because <laughs> it was so deep and meaningful yeah, and right. impactful. So, but I love. Um, I love the fact that, see, this is a beautiful marriage. You guys are still discovering stuff about mm-hmm. each other. Well, it's funny because we were talking about her spiritual fitness practice and, and how she got into spirituality. Mm-hmm. And we realized that we hadn't had a spiritual conversation about both of our beliefs other than religious oh, until four years into our, mar- our dating life. Wow. And when she started to take martial arts and I... I, I went back to taking martial arts. Um, this school I went to had a lot of spiritual teaching, so then mm-hmm. we started talking about it because she got into it. And we realized for four years we hadn't even touched upon it. That's so interesting. But, yeah, I mean, I think that's what Eric and I bonded over was spirituality. That's funny because she mentioned on the last show that part of her early studies was just engrossing herself in this in the study and teachings mm-hmm. and she talked about how she would sit with her girlfriends and they'd have debates and conversations and and talks about it and I laughed about it because part of what me and Chris Forte always talk about is that men don't do that men don't do we that. don't I'm like she 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 said it like it was just no big deal I'm like wait a second this is the whole reason we have this podcast because men don't do it that's very true and I don't think I realize that that's why you have the podcast but that is true men don't do that and um my uh the associate pastor at my parish um father Phil Cook always talks about men in in his homilies he always talks about like yeah we know men we men don't do this we don't we don't talk about emotion we don't talk because you just talked this past Sunday about grief mm. and I mean it was it was an incredible homily because he talked about we called Thomas the Apostle Thomas doubting Thomas but okay. that's that's what we've called him but that's nowhere in the Bible and the point of the it is that he's not doubting he's grieving he just lost his best friend. Got it. He's grieving. And he talks about, and I don't know about, and he, this is a great quote. He goes, I don't know about you guys, but men in our culture, we're not taught to grieve. Right. And he talked about, he goes, does anybody remember after 9-11, a couple days later, George Bush and everybody was telling us to go out shopping and that would make us feel better. Because we don't such an American thing to do. Such an American thing to do, but we don't grieve because what we do is we gloss. We don't grieve, we gloss. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. And it's worse for men than it is for women. Women 
you know, we're we're more in touch with our emotions than right. men are in general. Because, and this is my reason for the way that women, we have something that happens to us every month that we have no control over. <laughs> okay. I think I know what that is. That's the difference between men and women. You don't have anything. You you in, you have the illusion that you can control everything. We we don't have that illusion. That's we an like interesting to, point. I never thought of that. We like to think we have the illusion, but we don't have the illusion. See, but that or we that's don't good and bad, right? For men, we f- we feel like we have control over everything, but we really you don't have control. We don't. I was just telling you Are on we the way. To swear on this podcast. Yeah, we can put the explicit. Okay. Tag on it. It's fine. We don't have control over shit. <laughs> Nobody's got control over it. Right, right. We got nothing. It's well, I was an just, illusion. I was just telling you, um, we went out to the store before the pod, and and I was telling you, just tell me what you need, because I'm just, I I have a wife and two children. I'm just taking direction at oh this point. Oh, my God. I love it. I love it. And to all the husbands and fathers out there, pay attention to this man. You just take direction. <laughs> <laughs> Accept your fate. <laughs> See, I've, I've accepted that I have no control. <laughs> so um, before we get going, because I know we could probably talk for a few hours. Yeah. I want to thank everybody that is tuning in for subscribing to the Humble Warrior Podcast on iTunes, following us on Twitter at The Warrior Pod, and liking the Humble Warrior Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And if you've been following us, you know that Chris is in China, and he's posted some awesome pictures of his experience. He's got a picture of, uh, he went to Shaolin, saw where the birthplace of Kung Fu was. He's met some, some Buddhist monks. He just walked the, uh, the Great Wall of China. Oh, my God. And I just had a text conversation with him this morning, and uh, I'm sure when he gets back, that next podcast will be, will be something else. Wow. That's cool. So, Pat. Yes. You and I, you, you were over a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. You had dinner with me and my wife. And the kids. And the kids. <laughs> yeah, it was a family affair. That's one. And I was going through a, a decision point in my life where I had a, a great job opportunity. Yeah. And I was kind of at a crossroads. And you helped me through it um, as we talked about it. And what I want to do today is talk about that conversation Absolutely. But I also want to share with our listeners some of your experience, history, and background because I, th- I find it fascinating and just awesome. All right. Well, cool. Well, thanks for the compliment. Yeah. Well, <laughs> when I, you're living and it doesn't feel fascinating, cool, and awesome. Well, but, but you told me, and correct me if I'm misquoted, but you, are, you said you are happier now in your life than you've ever been. That is absolutely true. Right. That and is then, absolutely true, and it's a mystery to me too. Now, right? Yeah, yeah. And you're now. How did you phrase it when we were talking about this? Your health. Now, your health is great. No. Um, or so my health is good. I'm actually very healthy. Right. I have very limited mobility. Um, and uh, well, my story is that um, we don't actually know what my story is. We don't know what happened to me. Right. We know that, um, well, what doctors say is that I have, what what doctors say and what we use on an official form is that I have MS. Okay. Um, But I don't have MS because every MS drug made me worse. Okay. So the, the, uh, the 
what's the word I'm looking for? Anyway, the timeline is that I got in a car accident. I was rear-ended. And then I never got checked out afterwards because I felt fine. And I got out of the car perfectly fine. Right. Um, and about how long ago was that? This is 1999. Okay. So I got in a car accident. And then a couple months later, I moved to New York and changed my lifestyle from being like a car, sedentary lifestyle to suddenly walking everywhere. Okay. Then, um, so you were in, in the Detroit area. I was in the Detroit area and then I moved to New York yep. and I, you know, changed my lifestyle, start walking everywhere. And then after that, I, um, had some sort of, you know, then, then maybe like a year and so later, um, in the summer of 2001, I had some sort of neurological episode, let's call it, where I woke up in the middle of the night and, you know, had a, um, searing went to the bathroom had a searing headache like you know like nothing i've ever experienced mm-hmm. and then stumbled back to bed passed out woke up the next morning totally feeling fine and this was about three weeks before september 11th so it was august of okay 2001 and the only thing that would happen was that i would have these like what i called waves of despair come over me waves of like just utter sadness and despair and despair or was it depression or more, de- more? i don't know because it was a wave depression feels like it just stays with you but right a, the, this they would like really literally feel like it was overtaking me and it would be like a glimpse a moment of this deep profound sadness it just like went you know if we're going to talk like from the top of your head to the bottom of your toes like through every chakra just like pain um and so I figured when September 11th hit, I just figured I, I had had some sort of psychosomatic spiritual expectation of September 11th. Mm-hmm. So I never really, again, never got checked out because I just don't come from that family culture of you go to the doctor. Right. A lot, so I never got checked out. So then um, September 11th hit, I was in New York and a couple months later, uh, my business partner of the time and, my, and I moved into a building that was... Uh, a stone's throw away from the site. From Ground Zero. From Ground Zero. Yep. Literally, we could sit down on the fire escape and look into the smoldering pit. Wow. And um, when we walked into this room, because it was the front part of an artist's loft and we were going to rent it for our, you know, our startup business. And uh, when we walked into the room, it looked like some scene out of a horror film. It was covered in gray dust. Ooh. And we just, or I just, you know, we took it and I cleaned it up like I was cleaning my garage. <laughs> swept up, right? Swept up gray dust. Never, nothing protecting me. Yeah. Nothing at all. Um, and, you know, then like a couple weeks or a couple months later, I, not even a couple months actually, it was a couple weeks later, I, I'm like, wow, I can't go up my can't go up my right toe like you know you can't go up my walk on your toes and i I can't go up my heels which is you know i've been to so many neurologists that's one of the tests that they do so um that began the odyssey of neurological issues and seven or eight neurologists later you know um you know so anyway so we don't know what's wrong and I've continued to get worse. I had 2011 was my year of drugs. You know, like yeah. we're going to look, you know, for drugs. Because I'd heard this MS diagnosis. I heard this MS diagnosis. And then finally I went to this woman, uh, this female doctor um, 
who looked like Eunice Kennedy Shriver. I remember always kind of going, <laughs> oh, my God, I'm going to see Eunice today. Um, <laughs> and she would. So finally, she looked at me with this, like, look of pure and utter, like, a mixture of, like, pity and you must be the stupidest person on earth. And she was like, you have MS. You've been in denial. And so then this began this odyssey of, like, okay, I have MS. And so now what are we going to do about it? Okay. But I was... But this is part of the story and the journey of my life. So all this is happening at once because in 2008, I, when the world economy was collapsing, I lost my job yeah. and um, couldn't get another job and my health was declining. Yeah. And so, you know, finally in 2010, it was, so all this is like, all this is happening. It's just all falling apart. Life is falling apart. Quote unquote. Yeah. Actually, I mean, in hindsight, now we're in 2016, it's God pressing the reset button. Because my prayer and my desire for years on end was give me a second chance at life. Really? Because I've always felt like, I always felt like I was in this race against time. Um, I think a lot of people feel like that. I think people do feel like that. What is it about? We feel like we're in the... Because we know we're going to die. No, I felt like I was in a race against time. Um to do and be something ah to make your mark to make your mark or like for me because and i don't know maybe a lot of people relate to this where it's like you have these family expectations of who and what you're supposed to be so my thought was always like okay let me just get that let me just make them happy and then i can live my life gotcha so that was my race against time i think because i'm like in my soul i'm an artist but um, so it was living up to others' expectations. Oh, yeah. Others' expectations of, you know, my father, bless his heart, who and I think he's also an artist in his soul. But, you know, my father's 90 years old, still going incredibly strong. He's healthier than I am in a lot of ways, or he moves better than I do anyway. Um, <laughs> you know, he, uh, you know, you weren't allowed to be an artist you're an african-american and growing up in the 40s and 50s yeah. no you better you better you're lucky you go get yourself a job and you are lucky you know so right. you have an advanced you actually went to college you know mm-hmm. you get a job so anyway so my father was like no you know you get a degree in business and law arts a hobby yeah but that's hard if you're an artist in your soul that's hard if that's like you're that's who you are right so anyway, that was my, that was always my big fight. And I think that's why I was always in the race against time. That's funny because I kind of, if I look back, I, I, I tried to do both. Yeah. So I went to college. I got my degree. I said, okay, I have it. Then I ran off with a rock and roll band for four years. And then I didn't make enough money. Yeah. And I'm like, all right, what am I doing? What, what, where's my life going now? And I just went out and got a job and then ended up in the corporate world for the next I don't know, 12 years. Yeah. So I think that's interesting because I think a lot of people, we all handle it different ways. Yes. Where either you're like, okay, I got to, I have to live up to my responsibilities or the expectations that have been put on me by my family or right. by others. Right. Or even just society in general. Right. Or you just dive in, you're like, I'm going to be an artist. <laughs> well, you know what? But, I mean... I would love to have said, I'm just going to be an artist. Um, but I did not have the guts. I And I, I'm always fascinated by this because I just feel like I was not born with that gene. I was not born with the fuck it gene. 
I really wish I had been, but I, I really wasn't. I've acquired the fucking Jeep. <laughs> <laughs> Recently? <laughs> Recently, because of all the shit I went through in my life. Yeah. Whereas, okay, I'll go back. I'm sorry to anybody who's listening that this story is winding all over God's creation, but we'll get back there. Okay, so 2008. My health is already in decline. Things are going crazy. The world yep. economy is collapsing. I lose my job. I am feeling, and I'm feeling the spiritual push of, I can't go back to corporate America or I will die. Yeah. Because I have negated my soul for so long. I can't do this. Okay. So there's this big push pull. And then meanwhile, I'm getting sick. And meanwhile, you know, or I'm, I'm, you know, my health is continuing to decline and we don't know what's going on. And I'm, I'm falling or, and all this yeah. stuff. And then I get the diagnosis and then I'm like, Wah! you know, and, um, and then we tried drugs for all of 2011. So the first three months of 2011, I tried Avonex, which is the, um, the drug of choice for uh, MS, apparently. Okay. Um, after three months, I took myself off it because I'm like, I'm just poisoning myself. And I knew it, you know, and this, again, it becomes this instinct of, oh, my God, you have to make a decision about, am I going to follow the doctors or am I going to listen to my soul? Right. You know, and it was a tough, in a lot of ways, it was a tough decision, but in a lot of ways it wasn't. It was just like, no. And that's when I think I began to forge my own path of like, hmm. This is poisoning me. So I went off the drug. Um, then yet another neurologist um, says, well, we should try an intensive week of steroids. Oh. So so for five days, I go to uh, um, <clears throat> Bellevue Hospital. So for five days, I go to... <laughs> Five days ago to Bellevue Hospital, which always cracked me up because I like to think it was just, you know, horror stories. I always uh, think of TV shows. Oh, yeah. That's all I... Completely. It's New York Bellevue <laughs> Hospital. going to Bellevue. Oh, my oh, God. God. <laughs> you know? And I used to almost be like, I'm going to Bellevue. I don't really want to tell people. Right. Um, yeah. So I go to Bellevue, and uh, for five days, I'm with cancer patients, but I'm not, I'm not receiving chemo. I'm receiving um, 10,000 milligrams of some steroid for five days. 10,000 a day? What, you just had an IV running right into you? Mm-hmm. Yikes. It's crazy. And so then, and the thought was that that was going to stop any progression. So it didn't do anything except make me crazy. Because, and they warn you that that much steroids is going to make you crazy, for yeah. pos- potentially. My poor, one of my dearest friends in the world, bless his heart, you know, because he was with me um, on the Friday night or the Saturday of this five days. And I did. I went a little crazy. Like what? Like, did you... Like, you know, talking calmly one minute and, and just like scream. sobbing uncontrollably yeah, okay. the next yeah. and then laughing. This poor man. Oh, my Lord. So um, that did nothing. And then at the end of the year, I went on some experimental drug that I took myself off of after two weeks. So, you know, I've had this journey, this insane journey of mm-hmm. health um, and losing my job. And with that time, I, you know, the knowing I can't go back to corporate America and just, you know, to mark where I was, I had been a senior vice president of a production company, which consulted to a major media buying agency. Yeah. In Manhattan. In Manhattan. Um, so, you know, just understand this journey. It's like really crazy. And, you know, so to a certain extent, I'd reached the pinnacle of where I was like, oh, my God, now you I did it. You're where you I wanted it to be. I did it. I hope everybody's happy. Right. And so then I, you know, so then, but I really just always just wanted to be an artist. I'm working a novel for years and all this 
stuff. So, mm-hmm. so there I was. So um, I had started working, kind of working, you know, um, doing a lot of contract work or, you know, whatever, um, at a small theater gallery space in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Um, I got hired as a production manager for a reading of an opera, and that was like my first foray back into creativity. You know, made $300. Um, <laughs> woo! Um, and then, uh, God, I don't know. And then eventually uh, I became their managing director. And it was just, you know, it's comical to think about because it it's like, you know, I had been making TV money. Right. Which is which is six figures, but six figures in Manhattan is actually not that much money because <laughs> right. it's Manhattan. Right. Um, but, you know, there I was making six figures and all of a sudden I'm now making like, I don't even think I was making a third of what I'd made in television money. It was so insane. But, you know. Um, but how did you feel at that point? Better and better because... I, you know, I was writing a little bit. I was doing a little bit of writing. Mm-hmm. I was writing plays. I mean, it was really a cool experience. I got a chance to direct. So, you know, I'm a theater major by, by you know, from my degree. And, um, you know, I directed the first, my second play in 20 years was at an off-Broadway off wow. venue in Manhattan. Um and we played, we only played four shows, um, but it was sold out every night. That's great. It was a great experience. It was yeah. amazing. And, um, and that's when I was like, and you know, when, when I was directing, that's mm-hmm. when I was like, I'm breathing. This is where I'm meant to be. This is who I was born to be. I am an artist. I'm a director. This right. is what I am. Um, so it was really, it was an amazing experience, you know? Uh, and then. I was writing plays and we did this 10 minute play festival at, um, at this venue, which is called the cell, a 21st century salon. It's a great place. Um, in Manhattan. So anyway, we set a theater. It's a theater gallery space. Okay. Um, it's zoned as a gallery, but it's also a theater. Okay. But it's a white box, not a black box. I don't know what that means. Well, little theaters are usually a black or painted all black. Oh, Okay. And so you get that illusion of like that they're bigger, bigger or whatever, but because it. it's a gallery space, it's a white box. Got so it. it changes things a little bit. But anyway, so, uh, so we were, so I was, where was I in the story? Um, you moved to the theater. The, so no, the I was, salon. so yeah, the 21st century salon, the cell. And I, uh, I was their managing director and we, oh, we were doing a 10 minute play festival and, uh, we had all these actors and we got down to three actors that we had not cast. And so I wrote a play for them. Just um, for the three that weren't? For the three that weren't cast, I wrote a play. Wow. In a night. And it was just like... In one night? But the thing, it's like when, you, when you're in the place where you're meant to be and you're doing who, who you're, be, you're being and doing what you're meant to be doing, it's so easy. It just, it just happens. It's effortless. It's so easy. So all this is going on. All this insanity is going on. And, and what year was this? 2009, 2010. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so it was just, it was a crazy experience of like coming into your own. But the whole time you're, you know, I'm worried about money. The whole time I'm freaking out because right. I'm still living in my <laughs> television salary apartment. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm paying, you know, yeah. 1950 a month oh, in rent. You know, and New Yorkers are crazy. 
right. with man, with rent. So people are like, well, you should rent out your bedroom. You know, and I'm still, I'm like, excuse me? That's not happening. Um, I will say that in 2010 or 2011, yeah, I rented out my bedroom. Um, <laughs> because you got to do what you got to do to that's survive. Right. That's and that's, right. that's the mentality. But, um, you know, look, I mean, things were rough. I got taken to housing court in New York. Housing court? Yeah, I nearly got evicted. Oh, because you didn't pay your rent? Because so I lose my job and I keep everything going for a year. Okay. I run through my entire savings yep. and I did not rent out my bedroom. Um, <laughs> I, you know, ran through my savings and, you know, did everything, but I kept everything going. Okay. You know, I kept my rent going, my food going. I kept my life going. So, okay. So you lived the same lifestyle. Not exactly. I mean, I adjusted, obviously. Right. But, you know, look, I still had, you know, my younger sister lived in New York um, and her college friends. I was like, you know, mom, auntie maimed everybody. Yeah. So they would end up at my apartment and I would cook big dinners. And I kind of didn't do it as much, but I still did it. Okay. You know? Yeah. A little. I mean, you know. But pasta's cheap, so you know. So I, you know, I'd feed the poor, starving college. They were—they were all graduate students, but they're all graduate students in the arts. So mm-hmm. you know, they would come over and hang out. But um, but I got taken to housing court because um, I ran through my money and had stopped paying my rent. Um, always, you know, hoping that you're going to get a job. Right, right. I mean, there's just you know, I really eventually want to write a book for people. For crisis, because I can tell you what to do and I can tell you what not to do. Yeah, <laughs> I'd love to see that book. <laughs> I can tell you what not to do. The thing is, always pay a little. Always okay. pay a little bit of money. Doesn't matter. You can't make the rent. Pay a little bit of money. Okay. I didn't do that. You're showing good faith that you're trying to make an attempt. Right. Right. Do that. Okay. I didn't do that. So, and you know, my that's land, good advice. Oh, I'm, I'm. Please learn from my mistakes, everybody. Um, but, you know, I was, cl- I was close to everybody at the landlord's office, so it was hard. And so, you know, they called, and I mean, everyone that was like, you know, she calls me, and she's like, hi, honey. I'm like, hi. Or I don't know if she said hi, honey, but she was just like, but we had that type of relationship. Yeah. And she was like, but I remember her saying at the end of it, she's like, you know, this is just business, and we have to do it. Right. I was like, and I was like, I totally understand. Do not worry about it. So months go by. I don't hear a thing. And uh, it is the week before Labor Day, 2009, and I get a postcard from the courts. So long story short, I never got served the papers. Oh. So I now have a week before my court appointment. And I'm like freaking out. Because this is like my work. And, then, and you know, from a spiritual standpoint, this had always been in the back of my head. This was my worst nightmare, my worst dream, my worst thing coming true. I'm standing there and I'm holding this card. This I have to appear in court for eviction proceedings in a yeah. week. Well, that's... Okay. Scary stuff. Frightening. Absolutely frightening. I called a friend who had real estate experience and... Um, and she called another friend who was a lawyer who had, they'd gone through this with somebody else. And so he's like, you have to go down to the court. You have to go sit in the courtroom and observe. And so um, I did. 
you know, find out who the judge is. So I sat and observed and I watched the whole thing and watched the proceedings and how the whole thing works. And I asked this, I asked some lawyer who was down there a question. I said, what's the judge's name? And he's like, are you appearing for her? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, he just looked at me and he was like, you'll be fine. And it, it was a female judge. So I don't know if he thought. Huh. So okay. A week later, I go down to court and um, I asked a friend to go with me. He couldn't do it. And I asked my parish priest, and at the last minute, he couldn't do it. He got called to the archbishops. I was like, <laughs> wait a minute. Isn't, isn't that the point? You're supposed to be looking after the poor of me? No, no, no I didn't say this. I was thinking. <laughs> I'm like, Dolan, I can't stand that guy anyway. Don't go. No, no. I, I will not start off my rant on the hierarchy of the Catholic Church. Anyway. Um, yeah, we'll save that for a different... Save that for you a can different come back job. to talk, talk about that in a different um, time. So... I end up going alone to housing court in New York. Oh, man. That's got to be so scary. I could not even imagine. I can't even tell you the fear. I, I mean, and even talking about it right now, it still comes up. It is it is literally, literally the worst experience of my life. I, I, I mean, because it's, it's not only just is it one that you, you, you're about to get evicted. Well, you don't know what's going to happen. I mean, yeah, but you're... But, but you it's potentially, also, like, you can have the roof removed. Oh, yeah. You won't have somewhere to and, live, And not right? to mention the shame. Oh, yeah. There's just, like... Well, there's always that. Yeah, yeah. Of, like, you know, and like, I'm not... you're a, a deadbeat that hasn't paid well, their rent and, for... you got to understand who I... You know, it's like, understand who I am. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. I... And I don't mean this in a snobby way. I just mean it in the sense of like, I have highly educated parents. I went to an all-girls boarding school in the north of England. Right. You know, I have a college degree. Right. Um, what the hell am I doing in housing court in New right. York? Right. Where, how did I screw up that badly? <laughs> that badly I screwed up. You know what I mean? Right. So you just have all this shame. And so I'm there and I'm alone and I'm sitting in this court. And, you know, you're dressed up because you want to look like a responsible adult. Blah, 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 blah. And I've got, I've got all this paperwork and all this stuff to say, you know, look, I'm not a deadbeat. I've been looking for a job. The world economy collapsed. So it's really rough right, out here. Right. I have these health issues, you know, which is preventing me a little bit. I've got this, I've got this, I've got this. So my landlord the, or the building manager who, again, I know. I gave the guy a bottle of wine a couple months ago because he helped me move into my new apartment. So the building manager's there with the, my landlord's attorney and... and. So wait a second. You were in court. They were trying to get money paid No, for- no. It's, you're, you're in the courtroom. Okay. You're in the courtroom and this is housing court. So it's yeah. like they're just churning them out. This is New York housing court. There's like... Ba-dum, ba-dum, ba-dum. It's like a revolving door. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're in front of the judge for five, ten minutes. Okay. So you're just sitting in court waiting for your docket and your number to be called. Okay. But, you know, you see people in the hallway and all that stuff. So I see them in the hallway. Oh, got it. And, um, you know, and he looks miserable because it's not like I'm not a deadbeat. He knows who I am. Right. And uh, so we're sitting in court. And so the story is that basically, or what ends up happening is that there is a person called the court attorney. And he's the attorney of the court. And a lot of times he works with the judge and takes cases before they go see her and tries to negotiate so they don't have to have to come up in front of her. Okay. Makes so sense. my landlord's attorney and the court attorney were in cahoots. So that when my case was called, my landlord's attorney was not in the room. So the judge calls, you know, the case of blah, 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 yeah. Patricia Jones. 
and the uh, we stand there and we're waiting because you waiting. and the court attorney, me, the court attorney, the judge, and uh, the building manager all waiting. Okay, and and the building manager's like, oh yeah, he just stepped out of the room for a minute. He should be back. We wait, we wait, and the judge is like, the judge is like, that doesn't wait for anybody. Right. She's like, okay, well you'll see the court attorney. Moving on, next case. That so was then, good, right? Hmm. Was that good? It's not good. Oh. I mean. You know, it doesn't, I didn't know what it was. Okay. I was just like, it wasn't good in the sense of, I probably would have, she probably, I, the the inference I got from that other lawyer was, female judge, you're a female. You'll get some she'll be a, She'll be a lot more lenient. Okay. So then I have to go into the very, behind the, behind the courtroom to this little room. So it's me in a little room with three men. Um... My, you know, the building manager, my landlord's attorney, and the court attorney. Okay. We're all sitting there. And they are bullies. And I'm alone. And they're just like, so, so, Miss Jones, you're going to pay your rent? And I'm just like, um, well, that would be the goal if I had money. Right. But I don't have any. And I'm like, and I'm, I'm going through like all, you know, I have this big file of papers. And I'm like, well, here's all the jobs I've been looking for. And I've been trying to get. And, you know, and here, and I have had these health issues because of 9-11. Well, a lot of people got sick at 9-11. Right. This, this is what this is they respond to me. And I'm like, this, you know, and my eyes are like saucers. Cause, Man, like, you are there by yourself. I'm there by myself. I'm about to cry. Sure. Because and, and I can feel that my, my cheeks are just like so hot because I'm just so freaked out, you know. So I'm just like deer in headlights. And um, so they're just bullying me. They're like, well, this is what you're going to have to do. You're going to, you know, you need to make a payment plan or you've got to pay up or da, 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 and all this stuff. And so and so they throw out this term. They're like, well, either you, you know, we come up with a payment plan now or we're going to have to go into traverse and trial. And I'm like, what's that and they're like well we would you know we'd set a court date and then you'd have to come back and you know prove whatever and if you don't you could be out in the afternoon you could be gone and it's like i mean they're just trying to scare the crap out right of me. well that's what lawyers do that's what lawyers do god god bless them um <laughs> so I'm about to, literally, I'm, I'm like sitting there going, well, let's see if we can come up with a payment plan. But it's like, I'm not making any money. Right. I'm on unemployment. <laughs> I don't have any money. So, um, you know, I, you know mm-hmm. unemployment from television money, woo, not the same. So, you know, I'm like, uh, well, maybe we should do a payment plan. So this was the most incredible, in a lot of ways, one of the most incredible experiences of my life. I'm sitting there. And I'm like about to do this payment plan, or I, I ask about it, and in my head, I literally can hear what I ascribe to the angels or the voice of the spirit of God saying, traverse and trial. Like, it's like screaming in my head, traverse and trial, traverse and trial. And I'm like, and in my head, I'm like, I don't even know what that means. Traverse and trial. <laughs> so then I'm like, um, can I take a break? I'd like to think about it. So they're like, I say, I need to use the restroom. I'm like, can I use that restroom? And and they're like, no, it's for court, you know, court employees only. I was like, okay, sorry. So I have to go out down this long corridor, through the courtroom, round through another long corridor, all the way to get to the bathroom. And I'm uh, surprised they let you go. 
I might, I might. You'd run, they think I might have been considering running <laughs> at that point. Well, what good is it going to do? Then, then they're well, going to evict me faster. Nah, I guess that's so, true. So, you know, I'm making my way, and then I, I see the attorney again. He's like, what's it going to be, Miss Jones? He's like, I, what are you going to do? And I'm like, well, I'm going to go to the bathroom. That's what I'm going to do. Oh. So I go to the bathroom, and I'm there alone. And I call my friend, and I call the friend that she gave me, the that's attorney. Wise. That's good. I can't get hold of anybody. Oh. And I'm sitting there, and I'm looking in the mirror, and I'm like, and I still, I can hear the angels screaming in my head, diverse and trial, diverse and trial. And I'm like, and I'm standing there. And I just, I had this moment where I just looked in the mirror and I was like, okay, God, if I believe I'm talking to you all the time and this is faith, I'm going to stand in faith. That's what you're telling me. So I walked back out and they're like, what's it going to be, Miss Jones? I went, traverse and trial. Oh. Wow. They were pissed. Because... When we first talked about traverse and trial, this is how busy this courtroom was. When we first talked about traverse and trial, I would have had a court date in two weeks. By the time I got back to them, my court date was now a month away. Okay. So I got more time. So within that month, I like I actually ended up getting some work, and I go back to court, and a friend, you know, a friend ended up helping me. We negotiate. So for two, no, for five months of my life, I paid double rent in Manhattan. Oh man! Woo, thirty-eight hundred dollars, crazy, thirty-nine, thirty-nine hundred. But you did it. I that's, did it. That's a. I mean, I did. I got work. I borrowed money. I paid it back. I mean, it was just a crazy experience. But you know, I did it. Um, and then the following year, I filed bankruptcy. <laughs> <laughs> so. It's yeah, I've been. Uh, it's been a journey. It's been a journey, and then um, so I go through all that, you know. And I'm now managing director of this theater space, making a quarter of what I used to make. I rent. I've rented out my bedroom to um, my first roommate. Got nicknamed Debbie Delusional because she was just a trip and a half. <laughs> Second roommate was adorable um, and sweet and very easygoing. Uh, and you know, it was wonderful. She would pay me, she was a foreign student. She would pay me the rent like four or five months in whole, in whole. Wow. I mean, so all that's of, nice. Oh God. Suddenly, suddenly I go from like, you know, nothing to like being able to, being able to manage my money because right. there is money, you know? Um, and so, uh, so, you know, it all worked out and I'm managing of this theater and, uh, and, that and, how, was, and your health is still... My health is still declining. Okay. Declining, declining, mobility. And what's going on is that my mobility is declining. Right. Um, now I want to stop you right there, just so everybody knows kind of where your mobility is at now. Yeah. Because I think that's an important point, is yeah. that you're walking with a cane. I walk with a cane. Yeah, problems... I walk up. with a cane. I um, Well, the entire right side of my body is... Um, really what's hit okay so, so it's almost the right leg drags okay um the right hand is contracted permanently and the hand is clawed i don't have use of my right hand at all permanently hmm. or just like that oh permanently meaning is it doesn't move okay <laughs> so it's permanent for the moment yeah um until until, until such it time it's not um and i use a cane and um the left hand actually is weakening substantially which is not making me happy um i 
have a hard time with things. Yeah. Yeah. Like, just moving know, on, just doing everyday things. Everyday things. I don't drive anymore. Oh, I miss driving. Um, <laughs> I miss my independence. I don't drive anymore. Um, you know, but what I do is I thank God for what I do have. You know, when I get up and go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, I'm like, thank you, Jesus. Nobody has to do this for me or with me. You know. Right. you got to be thankful for what you got because it could be a lot worse. That's true. Um. You know, but I, I don't necessarily, I can dress myself 85, 90%. Okay. Um, so now for most people, mm-hmm. I would say, I'll just say for me. Yeah. I might be really depressed and not feeling that I'm, I, that my life is, Yeah. I feel happier than I've ever felt in my life. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's an interesting thing. I mean, it's all part of the... Um, well, first of all, it's... Uh, somebody gave me a book about <laughs> radical acceptance. I was like, yeah, you know what? You try fucking doing this. And you read that book about radical acceptance. <laughs> um, but it, it is about accepting. And it's also about focusing on what is super important in life. I've always been incredibly social. Mm-hmm. So if you want to depress me, lock me up in a room. Right. Take your phone away. Take my phone away. <laughs> take my phone away. Um, that would happen for 90% of the people out there, I bet. Yeah. They'll, they take their phone away, they'll all be depressed. It's not about, and it's not so much about phone, it's about human interaction. Like, mm-hmm. if, you know, I came back to Michigan and I live with my sister and her husband and my niece. Um, and it's a different dynamic living with a family. Yeah. Than living alone i've lived alone for a long time i'm single i've lived alone a long time you know um except for the roommate stints but um you know i that makes me think i was in i was in new york in october for a business meeting mm-hmm. and i was sitting in starbucks and when i was single and i go to new york i'm like i fired up i get all this energy the city you know you know the city just yeah, it, it feeds you. yeah it feeds that's you energy my, that's my that's my soul's home now now i'm married yeah i have two children and i'm sitting at starbucks waiting for my next meeting and i'm watching all these people come come and go and they're all standing there looking at their phones and i'm thinking i'm looking at all these people and i'm like manhattan's like a place for single people it's a trip because yeah. I don't want anything to do with this right now. I could I couldn't even imagine living the life I live today in Manhattan, even though I know people do it. Oh yeah, I have a lot of people who are married with kids in Manhattan. But, but it was just this whole different vibe vibe for me now that my life now that I was a different point in my life. Yeah, which has made me think about it because you were kind of flipped in that you were single in Manhattan. Then when you moved back to Detroit, now you're living with a family. Yeah. And and kind of the emotions and the feelings and that interaction is different. It's totally different. And, you know, I mean, what, what triggered the move back to Detroit, actually, is, um, is family. You know, my, my younger sister, who is, she's actually my half-sister, but she's, you know, emotionally my full sister, my sister, you know, um, uh-huh. So she got married and pregnant all in one year. <laughs> and I'm 46. And the greatest desire of my heart is to be married. Uh-huh. Motherhood, I was like, eh, I could take it or leave it, you know. But being married is my 
ultimate, just like that's my dream. That's all I've ever wanted in life mm-hmm. since a very young age. So um, my younger sister gets married and pregnant all in one year. And I basically lost my shit. I was like, I've been through illness, <laughs> near eviction, bankruptcy. bankruptcy, and lose my shit. My sister gets married and pregnant yeah, all in one okay. year. I lose my shit. <laughs> that's what did it. And that's what made me. And then I was like, I am 46 years old. I am not doing anything even close to what I want to do. Because as managing director, you don't get to be an artist. Right. You're running a You're, business. Yeah, right. Um, and so I was just like, ah. So that's when I decided to go back to graduate school. Or go back to school for graduate school. And applied to Northwestern, who has a wonderful program um, for writing for screen, stage, and television. Which is exactly what I want to do and love and would do um and was respectful respectfully did not get in but i was the first runner-up literally literally oh. they called me and said our class is closed but we're keeping your uh application active in case someone doesn't show up okay which was like and then the chairman of the department who i'd been in touch with was like, you can apply again next year and you can even submit the exact same things. Which kind of, my instinct had always told me, and so it was this weird thing where it's like, I knew of one of the professors that was on the committee, the choosing committee or whatever. Uh-huh. And I kind of thought, that guy doesn't like me. He doesn't want me there. And that was just an instinct. Yeah. But when I didn't get it, and I kind of knew it was down to between me and one person. I just instinctively knew it. I just knew it. And, you know, the other person got in. And so my instinct just kept telling me, this is just a personality thing. And so when I, when, when, especially when the chairman was like, you can submit all the same stuff as you submitted this year. Mm-hmm. That's when I was like, oh, someone didn't like me. Because when you tell me to resubmit and change it up, Right. Or but you you he was so gracious and so lovely that I thought, huh, okay. So anyway, I didn't because by that point I was also very worried that physically I couldn't do graduate school. Okay. So I didn't I didn't actually end up going. And I just but I came home. I came home to wait it out and I had come home and I was living with my sister and her husband and you know, um And that was four years four ago. Four years ago. Time flies. So yeah, so it's weird, you know, my, in the four years, um, my mobility has continued to decrease. I'm at the point where I really, I can't stay alone. Um, like, you know, my family's going out of town and I could go with them or I could stay home if somebody will come and stay with me. And mm-hmm. I call it, and I, I'm like, you know, will you come babysit me for the weekend? <laughs> You know, come and live with me or so um yeah, I mean I really can't I can't get my own meals. Right. I can't I can make a cup of tea, but you know. Well, yeah, it's hard. I mean Yeah. But that's just you know, there's certain things that you can do. I mean, I can do some of this stuff on my own, it just takes so much longer. And right. I'm kind of taking my life in my hands as I do it. Right. Um you know, I laugh, my sister and I laugh about this all the time because years ago when I saw an occupational therapist and she was like how are you doing at putting on makeup? And, <laughs> and, and I looked at her, I was like, you don't have to worry about that. You don't ever have to worry about that. I will put it on with my toes if I will, <laughs> will be fine on the makeup. You know, my sister still laughs. She's like, you are so funny. Because I'm like, 
yeah, I got my makeup on. (laughs) I've learned how to do it with my keeping things in my mouth, one handed, whatever. So, so yeah, that's, um, it's, yeah, it's a challenge, but there's great, God, there's just so much joy in life, in my life, you know, um, because I relinquished a lot of control about who, oh God, I don't even know how to, I think that I'm who I always wanted to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got here by surrender. Sure. Um, and I was trying to be this person for years. Yeah. Trying to be this person with following what I thought was the way to do it. But it never was the way to do it. Right. And it really is about this surrender um, to God. And that's just the only way to put it for me. Yeah. I can't, you know, it's like, I can't say it any other way. It's all about surrender. So once you let go. Yeah, you get everything once you let go. Yeah. And then everything. Everything comes to you. Comes to you. Yeah, but you got to let go. And that's the hardest part. That's the hardest part. It's the worst part. Because I know for me, which leads us full, full circle. circle. Back to where we started. Yep. The illusion of control. Right. There is no control. You don't have the control. Right. Which is interesting because the day you came over for dinner, we hadn't seen you for... Three years. Three years. We built a house. We had another child. All these things had happened. I talked to you. You talked two to years before, but I hadn't seen you in three years. Right, right. Um, so we were just catching up, and I was at this point where I had this great job opportunity, and it would have I could have worked from home. I could have, you know, it would have required about a two month upfront commitment of going. Yeah. Flying back and forth to New Jersey. But after that, going to the office maybe once once a month and working from home and doing something that I've got the skills for and the background for. It was I, I told the recruiter when she called me that when she sent me the job description, she said, Why are you interested in this job? And I said, Well, frankly, it's very rare that I see a job position that matches my experience exactly. Yeah. And she said, great. And as we started going through this process, I started realizing that I've got this experience in marketing that's very niche. And I don't, I'm not passionate about it. I don't really. But that's the key. The key word right there is passion. Right. Like you have to be, you have to have passion. Right. I think that that's the key. It is. And I think the challenge is, is that I was at this inflection point where right now I've been running my own business for five years. We've had some ups and downs. We're kind of on the upswing. I've started doing this podcast with Chris, and we've got these other things happening. I've got a great family, a supportive wife, and, you know, I'm like you said, when I was exp- when we were catching up, Yeah, I'm loving life right now. It's life great. Life is awesome. Yeah. But then this opportunity comes that, financially was an awesome opportunity i would have met my lifestyle you know i could have worked from home but it something just wasn't right but ultimately you know it's like what i felt when i was talking to you was 
you were kind of like, eh, <laughs> about it. You know, yeah. there was, you weren't particularly passionate about it. And I felt, and I think I intuited this, that there was this, you felt this obligation. That was it. Similar to your, kind of your story up to the, yeah. Was this like, I need to do this to make everybody happy. Yeah. And, you know, what's hard is, and I was doing that without necessarily having responsibilities towards people. I said emotional responsibilities. Right. But you have, you have concrete responsibilities. You have a wife, you have a home, you have children. Yeah. Um, but what I kept asking you was, well, do you need this? I mean, I just kept getting the impression that it's like, you don't need the job financially. You don't need the the job would be would quote unquote give you a measure of security. Yeah, but a financial security. A financial let's security. Say. Yeah, but we don't. But there's no guarantees. No, the, the company as going we to the next as we day. know in two thousand eight. Yeah, right. So you so you know it's this illusion again, this illusion of control. Right, illusion of uh, that you could have the control but the reality is that you are happy your family is happy and you are financially you know viable secure as is yeah i mean we're not so why rock the boat was my thing right i mean why rock the boat if it's not your heart's desire if it's not going to make you happy if you're not passionate about it why rock the boat right and i said well because i feel like i i feel guilty Mm -hmm. for not doing it I feel like, you know, if this opportunity doesn't come around that often, if it was given to somebody else, they would take it in a, in a heartbeat. Right. It might change her life. Right. And I'm like, and I, I, I just felt a lot of guilt around that. Yeah, but you know, and and we talked about that because I a I don't I, I don't believe in guilt anymore. I think it's not worth it. Yeah. Guilt and shame are just not 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 good. There's no point. Yeah. Um, and and also, it's about this legacy for your kids. Like, you're leaving them a beautiful legacy right now. And the fact that it's like, daddy is home with them. Daddy is happy. And there's a happy life. That is such a tremendous gift. And teach what you're teaching them is amazing. It's a tremendous gift. Um, and I think that's really, really important. I mean, what's the lesson they're going to get from... Well, first of all, there's two months that you're, you would have been away. And who right. knows what would have happened in that two months? Mm-hmm. You know, um, you wouldn't have been here. Right. Stress on the household. That's a trauma. Kids, especially, you know, your daughter's four and a half, going on five. Yeah. Well, entirely. Yeah, she's four and a half. This is an age where kids start to, and I, my sister is a, is a psychologist, so I pick up a lot. And my father is, an, you know, an expert in early childhood education and development. So, um. You know, four, five, I think it's like four, five, six, maybe it's five, six, seven, but that is an age where kids, um, they can, they kind of start to develop this fear of losing a parent. Well, yeah, I think part of this challenge of the whole job is the two month commitment, but it's also Erica travels a lot yeah. for her job. Yeah. So we have a good, we have a, everything is balanced right now. Right. Why rock the boat? Why ruin the balance? You're there. You're this amazing father that's there. You're like you're like the base. Daddy's always here. This is beautiful base. Why would you kill the base? For more money. <laughs> Do 
you know i mean and that's the crazy thing that was the thing that's the crazy thing it's like and that's what i and that's what i told you i told you it is utterly insane that i am here in michigan um you know i am disabled on disability right uh and happier than i've ever been right um in my life which is really bizarre yeah. you know um because if you had told me even five years ago you're gonna move back to michigan and be happier than you ever been in your life i would have said you're full of shit yeah um but i am and that's really was the big that's been the big lesson for me is there's so much joy in simplicity Right. There's so much joy in really shutting out the world and listening to your own guidance. Whatever that, I mean, if it's, if you're spiritual and you have a connection with God or spirit, that's great. Or if it's your inner voice, which probably is God or spirit, but I'll leave that up to other people to decide what they want to call it. Call it. Um, it's, it's really important to to listen to that inner guidance right. and to know yourself because it's kind of like I don't know you know it's kind of like you look at you look at somebody else and in, in you know like a gorgeous coat or something like that and mm-hmm. then you put it on it looks like crap on you <laughs> it's like because you're not them right. we're not cookie cutter right right so you know that's not the life that's going to work for you. Your life would not maybe work for other people, but it works for you. Right. So why ruin it? Why rock the boat? And that I believe is that whole thing about feeling guilty about being happy. Yeah. It's, it's wrong a, with being happy. It's a, you know, it's such a. I don't know if it's a new. I don't know. You know. When I was in my 20s, I had a, I, I thought this is how my life had to go. Right. You know, I had to get a job. I had to find someone I loved, get married, have children, have the house, all that. Right. And then there was a point in my mid-30s where that wasn't happening. Yeah. And I had a freak out <laughs> because my life wasn't the way I was, was taught it be. was supposed to be. And at the point that I, you know, at the point that I learned that that's okay mm-hmm. and that it doesn't need to be that way. And I've, I actually accepted that, all right, it might not be that way. And if it's not that way, it's going to be okay. It's going right. to be fine. Right. Is when everything came to me. Yeah. It's that relinquish. Right. And it's also that radical acceptance of what is. You just have to accept. And that's kind of where, you know, it's so I've had to accept. Okay, you know what? You can't drive yourself. You can't do this. Da, 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 da. Now, here I am. I'm here. I can't, I don't work anymore, quote, you know, quote unquote. But I volunteer. I'm on the school board of my parish's school. I created the marketing committee. Um, I'm a, I work harder than I ever did. Right. Um, in a lot of ways. I, uh, I have, I'm part of a playwriting group. I, um, I have my own projects that I now am working on. Yeah. Um, you know, a novel that I wrote, you know, that I am trying to get out there and all that stuff. Uh, and I'm getting a chance to do all that. I'm getting a chance to be all that. And, 
I had to get over the guilt of not working. Because, mm-hmm. you know, in this culture, you got to work, you got to work, you got to be, you got to work, you got to Right, right. I had to get over the guilt of not working, which took a little while when I got back here. You know, well, it's hard. It took, a, it took a couple years to get over the guilt of not getting up and going somewhere every day. Right. And it's not like I sleep until 11 o'clock every day. I do not. You know, I'm up, I'm up eight-ish and, you know, and I... I've I've got to stretch in the morning or I, I, I don't move at all then. But, you know, it's like I stretch in the morning and I try and get um, some prayer in every day. Um, but, you know, life unfolds, especially with kids in the house. <laughs> yeah. Life just happens. And you're like, oh, my God, it's work like in the afternoon. What the hell happened to the day? But, you know, um, there is such guilt. We, you know, I think our society traffics in guilt. Yeah. I think so. I mean, there's just so many expectations. Yeah, but we've created this expectation. It's true. We've created this. We've created, and it's very interesting what the Western culture, and especially the United States, has done in terms of we've created these quote-unquote expectation of the perfect life. You know, um, what it's supposed to be, you know, and who you're supposed to be in. How you're supposed to be, and that was one of the joys of living outside, living in Manhattan, is you don't get that you don't get that pressure as much. Really? Well, it's a different pressure. Not you don't get the suburban marriage okay, pressure. Yeah. You don't get the get married, have kids, live in a house, kids go to school pressure. You have the you need to succeed and be successful pressure in Manhattan. Right, right. It's different, but it's there. I mean, so so we have all these like expectations and you're supposed to be a certain thing. And it's like, I never felt successful in Manhattan ever. Right. You know, um, it's it, it just this, a quote just popped into my head that I have to get out because, you know, it, it was from a mentor I had in high school. Mm-hmm. It was a tennis coach. And I used to have these long conversations with him about life and teenage angst kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And one day we were talking about, I, I was doing something. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And he looked at me and he said, don't be sorry, be you. And that just popped in my head when we're having this conversation because it's, it's, that's kind of what we don't do. Yeah. We are, I'm sorry I didn't do this. I, I'm not living up to this expectation. Instead of being what's kind of inside of you and understanding who you are yeah, and what your purpose is or what, right. what your contribution is. What, and who, you know, it's like, because you're not going to serve anybody and you're not going to serve the world or society or your family by being something you're not. And I just think that is such an important lesson that we don't learn because it seems to be this thing of like society wants you to conform right the world wants you to conform you know which is the political argument that's even kind of going on right now to a certain extent of like right and i won't get into politics we'll say but that. It, that, we'll, we'll say that'll be a good one that'll be a good one but i mean it is the kind of like the the you know and that's what all these you know and i talk to someone who used to be in this world these uh reality shows are about it's like 
you know, people are trying to conform. Everybody's trying to be a Kardashian. I pick on them a lot, those poor girls. I'm so sorry. Um, they're probably really lovely people. I have no doubt in my mind. They're sweet. I think they are. I think they're very sweet. I, I secretly used to watch the show all the time. <laughs> I don't watch the show. I just am so... But you know what fascinates me is like... I think what fascinates me about the Kardashians is like, they are famous for being pretty. Yep. That's it. They're famous for being pretty and we're watching their lives, which are just normal, screwed up, up, down Just lives. like everybody else. Just like everybody else. That's what I liked about it. And, but we've made them into celebrities and then, but then people try and if their life isn't screwed up, they try and emulate that. Right. And that becomes a new standard and a new norm. Right. Which kind of brings us back to guiltless joy because your life wasn't screwed up and you were happy. You were like, something must be wrong. Right. Or I can do better. Or I can do better. But no, why can't you just be that be, you know, if you're going to get spiritual about it or religious about it or whatever, it's be still and know that I am God. Be still. There's nothing wrong with being still and discovering your life and your breath and what makes you happy. And, you know, and that that was a hard lesson for me. I was the constant you know, never satisfied. Um, You're overachiever. Were you an overachiever? I know. I always call my wife an overachiever. I don't know if I was an overachiever because I always think I'm kind of lazy. So I don't know if I'm oh, an overachiever. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I just wanted, but but let me say this. It isn't necessarily overachiever. And I really wouldn't have, I'm almost, I'm almost laughing because I don't know if I consider myself an overachiever. But um, it is a sense of like, I know what I'm capable of. And I was never living up to it. Mm. I don't think that's being an overachiever. No, that's, that's being that's true reaching to your, your potential. That's just being true to yourself. Yeah. That's like soothing your soul. You know what I mean? Like I always knew I was an artist and I always knew I was a storyteller, but I didn't know how to do it because I didn't necessarily grow up in the era where people were celebrating that. Now people celebrate it a little yeah. bit more. And you they, didn't give yourself permission to do it. Exactly. And I actually wasn't looking for you to give myself permission. I was looking for permission from, from others. Other others. Well, that's that's a big thing. Yeah. We're always looking for everybody else's I was acceptance. For, exactly. So so yeah, it's a different um a different it's just it's just a different way. But you gotta be you have to give yourself I like that, giving yourself permission, but Got to be true to yourself. Cliched as it sounds. All those well, cliches the guilt, starting true. The guiltless joy. The guiltless. guiltless joy. Just, you have to be, it's okay to be happy. Right. And it's okay to be peaceful and content and happy and not always hungry. You know, um, right. you know, I look at my niece who's four and, you know, she's four. So there's a lot of leeway in four. Um, <laughs> you know, and every time she sees something on television, she wants it. Mm. Want, 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 want. Every toy, everything. And it's like, honey, what about just being happy with what you have? And right. it's like, okay, yes, she's four, so whatever. Right. But there is a point, but that's very much who we are as Americans that's or in what, society. That's, that's what, yeah. It's like, what That's about what makes our economy work. You gotta, you gotta want, so you buy, and then. But what about just being happy? You know, um, and that's kind of what I've learned. And to a certain extent, you know, it's like I still have my things. I love to shop and I love secondhand stores. And that's kind of like satiated my my 
shopping appetite is it's not so damaging when you spend ten dollars <laughs> <laughs> all right as opposed to a hundred but um but then the other side of it is is like kind of um for lent i attempted to like give up unnecessary shopping okay I and, think- and it was a very interesting exercise of like feeling and fe- feeling and recognizing and trying to dissect that desire right well, I think it, I think there's a, the, the part that when you, when you're surrendering and you're letting go, mm-hmm. right? I think if you, for me, if I think about how my life has gone, you know, you start out, let's say when you're a teenager, you're starting to like figure out, oh, I can make money right? and I can start being independent and start doing things. Mm-hmm. And so you want to make more money because it. Buys you more independence. Buys you freedom. Yeah, and freedom. And you're, you you equate that at such a young age. I'm 15, 14, 13. I, I, I remember fighting with my parents when I was 12 because I wanted to get a job being a caddy. And they were like, you don't need to work. Just concentrate on school. We'll give you the money. I'm like, no, I want the money. I want to make it myself because basically I was me breaking away and right. trying to, to, to find my freedom. And I think what what happens is, going back to just this whole situation that I've been in, you kind of start making more money and making more money, and then you start realizing the material things and how your life changes with that money, and everything is tied to that money. And you equate the money with freedom. Right. And that has been the biggest lesson for me. I've got to tell you, that's been the biggest lesson. You know, I was making over, you know, over $100,000 a year. Yeah. And. Well, and you, you told me you turned down a job making a, a lot oh, more. Yeah. That's, that's my, that was the beginning. Actually, yeah. Well, let me just finish the thought. So it's like, okay. I, I, I was making a lot more money and I was, I was never as happy as I am now. Uh-huh. And I was never. And I never, there was never enough money to buy things. Now, partly it could be because I was living in Manhattan. But the other part of it was, it was just like, I just didn't know how to be. Right. You know? Um, and it's just so much easier now, you know? And people might think, you know, and not to tell everybody all my business, people might be thinking, well, that's easy because you live with your family and they probably pay for everything. No, you know, I, I pay my way, mm-hmm. you know? Um and if I didn't live with them, you know, I could, I could, I could afford to live not with them necessarily, but why would I, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just one of those things of like, no, you know, there is joy in there's when, when you feel healed on the inside of yourself, when you feel like I know who I am, I know what my purpose is and I don't know, you know, my exact purpose, but I'm just saying it's like when, when you find peace, you don't really you don't need all the other stuff. Right. And that, and going back to the point about, you know, like when I turned down that job, I didn't actually <laughs> turn down the job, but I turned down the even exploring when the headhunter came for this big job that yeah. was ridiculous money. I just was at that point of like, I, it, it, by that point it had hit me that it's like, I, I don't think I'll be happy. It just doesn't matter. I won't be happy. Right. You know, and, and that's yeah, which brings us back to where what right. you were experiencing. Well, and that was the gift. That was a for me. It was a big gift because it 
it made me feel even happier, <laughs> if that's even possible, that I had this realization that I had this great, I, I've got something great right yeah. now. Yeah, you're right. And it just made me accept it more, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, that, and that is a gift. That is a, that's a tremendous, that's a blessing, that's a gift, that's a grace from God if you can be happy and accepting of where you are. Yeah. And be able to look and go, you know, thank you for where I'm at and be okay with it and not being, not worried about the next second or fearing the next second or whatever, feeling or being scared that it's going to be taken away from you, just being. Well, I think that's the other point is that's the, it's the fear of having everything taken away. Mm-hmm. Right. But I think that also when you surrender, that's what takes away the fear. Yeah. Is that, okay, it's going to happen the way it's going to happen. It is. And, you know, I mean, and to me, from my own personal experience, um, it is the gift of faith. That it's faith. I... I have great faith in God. And and to a certain extent, you know, God got me through hell and back. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, God got me through housing court in New York, which really is probably the anti-room of hell or the place <laughs> of hell. I mean, that was just like the worst. I story. can't even imagine. I really, you know, just going back to that story was I walked out of there that day and sobbed on the street corner and called a friend of mine or called my sister Back in Detroit, I was in New York, and I called her, and I just kept saying, I can't believe how mean they were. <laughs> I mean, I just was like, that is probably the closest I ever want to be to, like, feeling pure evil. That's funny, because the, the story, the way you've told that story and that experience, that's how I imagine New York. That's... How, all of New York? Well, that's just, if you know... Yeah, that's how I imagine it. Yeah. That's how it goes. Like, if you're going to end up in 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 court in New York yeah. for something that you were supposed to do and didn't do, yeah, nothing good's going to happen to that. <laughs> well, I've watched too many shows. Oh that, I mean, every TV show is based in New York, and I know, I know. Oh my god! <laughs> no, but the greatest part was, you know, when I went back to court the second time, and the friend went with me, and. Um, and I'm going to say this, and you know, this is the other thing about living in New York. In New York, you know, there's so many different cultures mm-hmm. that you just call it out. You don't, you, you, no one's being a bigot, no one's being a racist. You're oh, there's like, no PC in New York. There's no PC because you don't have to be PC because it's like this is just real life. Yeah, whatever. So I just loved it. You know, the friend that came with me is this petite Jewish woman whose you know family had owned real estate uh-huh. in New York. Um, She's just, you know, just always put together, you know, and one of her expressions was, well, everybody's always got $75 on a credit card. You know, that that's just her expectation. So she's the one who came with me and my attorney's lawyer was a little, well, not a little, I mean, he was like a young Jewish lawyer. Okay. And I just thought it was hysterical. There was a part of me, there was a part of my brain, the writer part of my brain that was separating right, right. and watching was like. I love this because culturally, you guys are talking the same language. <laughs> culturally, you're just, because she was just like, she just, and this guy was such a jerk because he wouldn't, 
he was only directing his question to me and I said, well, she's my, I said, well, she's my representative. She can speak. And he said something and she just looked at me in front of him. He's standing right there and she looked at me and she goes, well, he's an asshole, isn't he? <laughs> and I was just like, oh, see, I love this. You, you well, that's New York for me too. Yeah. That's 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 how I would picture but New York being too. New York. Yeah, that is New York to a certain extent. That's that part. But the other part of it is, is you like you know, like my dry cleaner on my street knew her. That you know walked into the load of her. You know, I mean, it's just like I, I New York is my soul. Like when I arrived in New York, I was like, oh my god, I can breathe. This is what I've been looking for my entire life. That's the way I feel about New York. Yeah, like just. I love the energy. I love the streets. And I, I had to leave, though, because it just became right. too much. But there's great joy here. And that that's a shock. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Pat, I want to thank you for taking the time to be on the Humble Warrior podcast. It was a pleasure. This was really fun. And thank you so much. We'll and have to have you on again because I know you're working on some projects. I am. I am. And uh, we'll have you come back to talk about where you're at with those things and maybe help you spread the word on some of these. That would be cool. The novel I'm, you're writing. Yeah, well, we're going to do a podcast of the novel, a serialized podcast, but once you've read it, mm -hmm. then we can go on and talk about these really crazy, complicated people. Oh, I like it. Which will be really fun. That'll that, be fun. That'll be fun. That'll be fun. Yeah. Well, well, we'll have you back on again. All right, cool. Thank you. So, um, everybody, thank you for listening. You can find out when we have new episodes by subscribing to the Humble Warrior Podcast on iTunes, following us on Twitter at The Warrior Pod, and liking the Humble Warrior Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. The next week, uh, Chris Forte will be back. And until then, live brave. Join us next week for the next episode of the Humble Warrior Podcast. Subscribe to the Humble Warrior Podcast by visiting chrisforte.com.